RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Shabam is a production of Fully Boo Incorporated, sponsored in part by Google. This is Mel's brain. Wait, what? Just go with it. We're going back in time to when you were a fetus, okay? Mel is still in his mother's womb, but his brain is growing at a ridiculous rate. Every minute, his tiny little brain... No need to be insulting. ...is growing brain cells called neurons. Neurons. 250,000 of them. Every minute. And they'll keep growing at this rate. And then... Mel's gonna... And right now, he's starting with 100 billion brain cells. There are as many neurons in Mel's baby brain as stars in the Milky Way galaxy. It's full of stars. But here's the catch. Only a fraction of these neurons are connected to each other. What's the point of that? It might help if we could picture what neurons actually look like. Okay, why don't you let the uh, doctor take over here? Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, Mel's an ER doctor. Well, not baby Mel, but actual grown-up Mel. Yeah, thank you. This is very complicated. It's highly technical, so pay attention. A neuron is a cell that basically looks like an ink blob with branches sticking out of it. That's not that common. Those branches send out signals, like little messages, until they find other branches attached to other neurons to receive those signals. Once that message is received, we're connected! A connection is formed, and the brain uses those neurons like a little network to figure things out. But when we are born, the majority of our brain cells are just sitting there, not talking to each other. Just just sort of sitting there. Anybody? So, Mal. How is your little baby brain going to start making connections? Well, my little baby brain is born with these special tools to help me sort of input all this information. Nose. It's called our five senses. Dandelion. Sour. Soft. Cat. Red. It's red. Feather. It has feathers. Look. It flies. Listen. It makes that sound. It's a... That's right, it's a bird. By the time Mel turns three, he will have collected enough information about the world to form 1,000 trillion connections between his neurons. Just to give you an idea of how many 1,000 trillion is, if Josh were to start counting those connections right now... One, two, three, and count around the clock, four, five... It would take him 30 million years to count them all. 8,064, 8,064, all right, I'm gonna stop. That's a lot of connections. Now what does the brain do with all these connections? Uh, Let's see. This is Gina, and she is on her way to the train station, heading home from work. Oh, excuse me. Gina is using her brain to do a ton of things at the same time. She navigates to the correct train. Oh, yes. Makes a mental note. A lovely scarf. I wonder if mom would like that. And she successfully avoids sitting next to the guy with the outrageous body odor. Whoa, buddy. But while Gina is doing all of that, her brain is also regulating her balance. (laughs) Cal, what was that? We are stopped momentarily waiting for signal clearance. (sighs) Regulating body temperature to exactly 98.7 degrees. So hot. Yes, we are aware that the air conditioning is broken. Plus or minus, a little bit. Sweating like crazy. Monitoring when she is hungry. Or thirsty. Controlling her heart rate. And telling her... Uh, Looks like we are going to be here for a while, folks. Yes, that's right. Telling her when she needs to go poop. Darn it. Okay, so we've established that her brain is doing a lot of stuff at once, which is great. But what makes it really awesome is why it's doing all this stuff. What our brains are really doing a million times a day is figuring stuff out. In a way, they're looking for the truth about the world. 
And this goes back to those neuron connections that Mel's baby brain was making. As we grow, we observe and question things, and these experiences make connections. So by now, Mel's brain has made so many connections that it's really good at identifying the truth about things. Zebras are black and white. True. The sun is hot. Mm, true. Taylor Swift is the best singer of all time. Yes. No! That's an opinion, not truth. Here's what we're getting at with all of this. Doing all this great stuff like regulating your heart rate and managing poop is important, but your brain is also designed to be a figure-outer machine. So how do we know that what we're figuring out is actually true or false or just an opinion? We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to look at how to figure out the truth. Hey, you ever seen that YouTube video where they do that science experiment where they blow up that pumpkin? Oh, that foam fountain? You ever seen a foam fountain? No, those aren't science experiments. An experiment tests something, okay? What you're talking about is just a chemical or physical phenomenon. What are you calling it? A phenomenon. I thought those were experiments. Nah, it's just a phenomenon. Yeah, I don't get it. Look, you use an experiment to figure something out, okay? Blowing up pumpkins, you ain't figuring out nothing. Yeah, you're figuring out what happens if you blow up a uh, pumpkin. No, that's just something you observe, which is a physical phenomenon. All right, so we talked about your brain being designed to figure stuff out, like determining what's true and what's not. But how do we know what's actually the truth? Because we also have opinions that feel like the truth. Taylor Swift is a bit. Well, this goes back to a word people use when they demonstrate physical phenomena on TV. Science! Science! Awesome science. Let's see those. Actually, science is not blowing things up on TV. Science is the process of figuring things out. And when we look for answers to questions that we have about the world around us, Science is a way of figuring things out that is most likely to lead us to the truth. Truth. And science isn't just something that scientists use in labs and biology class. We use science every day. Oh, you want to see this one? I want to watch Animal Planet. Let's take a family. Can you go back, please? What? What? This one? Oh, sports. Nice. No. Ooh, nice shot. No. Yeah. Stop, Ellie. No. To your average, everyday family. Wait, is she talking to us? Yes, I am. Dad, the lady's talking to us. Hold on. I'm on, I'm on the phone. You don't see I'm on the phone? They're watching TV, and suddenly the picture gets all blocky and then disappears. Whoa. Dude, what'd you do? I didn't do anything. Uh, Dad, Dad, cable's out. What usually happens next? We shout a lot, and then mostly we sit on hold with the cable company. The can you tell him? Can you can you all calm down? I'm on the phone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's crazy over here. Hello. We apologize for your whole time. We've all had to troubleshoot a problem. Okay, I'm screwing it back in right now. Thirty seconds. Well, troubleshooting is essentially science. Yes, I tried turning it off and back on. The truth we're looking for is often the answer to a question like, "What is wrong with this janky piece of equipment?" Hello. Dead. Hello. Dead. It's probably the box or the cable. Why don't we just try and figure it out? Or we could just call back again. Hello? Now you may be thinking, our brains have been figuring things out since we were born. Why do I need to learn a special process like science to figure things out? Well, the answer is, sometimes your brain is the problem. Your brain is great, and that's no lie. But it don't always steer you right. And the very thing that you use all day can be the thing that leads you astray. Okay, so why is your brain the problem? Well, sometimes our brains, the very things that help us troubleshoot and figure things out, can actually be the thing that gets in the way. Your brain is great, and that's no lie. But it's all right, enough. Sometimes we rely on what we know, or what we think we know, to lead us to a conclusion. And that can lead us astray. In this next story, we'll hear how easily our brains can get fooled. 
He got the plane so crossed up that it was taking me way too long to figure out where I was. This is Ron Roderweiss. And it got to the point where he said, okay, you're dead. He also happens to be my dad. I really didn't like flying. A long time ago, he decided that he was going to get his pilot's license. The only reason I learned how to fly is because I was so afraid of it. So let me get this right. So if it feels scary to sit in a giant metal can that could fall out of the sky at any time, the best way to get over that is to say, let me try that? Yep. It's the Rotorwise way. This explains a lot about you, Wendy. Anyhow, when you are learning to fly, you study the mechanics of the plane and what keeps it up in the air. And of course, you need to practice actually flying. Else? You have to log a certain number of flight hours before moving on to the next level. And this level is called hood training. So the day that, that it happened with me, he said, OK, we're going to put some hood time on. He says, now put the hood on. Wait, he's flying with a bag over his head? <laughs> So it's more like a visor that you can't see through. You can look down so you can see your gauges, but you can't look out, so you can't really tell which way is up or down or left or right. But even though you're supposed to be able to see the gauges, the instructor, to make it tricky, covers them with suction cups. And then he takes the plane and flies it all crazy, spins it around, does all this stuff, so you actually have no idea where you are or what's going on. Oh, I'm just going to try and get you good disoriented here. He was flying the airplane for at least three to five minutes, and it got very violent. I mean, he, he just disorientated me to any way he could, where it felt like we're crashing. And then what he did is he said, your airplane, and he pulled off all six of the suction cups that were blocking the instruments. Uh, Wendy, he's being taught to fly, right? Yes. The altimeter was going down like crazy. The thing was in a, a dive. I mean, a real dive. We were coming down, and airspeed was like at 160. And it just totally scared me to death where what I did is I took the hood and I lifted it off of my head. I didn't even look at the instruments because it scared me so much that I said, nah, 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 we ain't doing this again. And I took the hood off. He said, that's cheating. You can't do that. I said, I'm not dying in this airplane. (laughs) In order to become a pilot, you have to be able to fly just using your instruments because your brain won't always give you the truth about where you are. My brain is telling me that I am in a dive in a right-hand side spiral, but I was actually going to the left. So this is kind of like vertigo. This is where your brain is confused about where it is in space. What's up and what's down, what's left, what's right. And they'll teach you to rely on your instruments, but your body will be in vertigo and it'll be telling you which you're used to your whole life to believe. And that's deadly because you may not even realize you have vertigo. So if you're flying in a situation where you can't see where you are, like at night, and you just trust your brain, You're going to crash. you got to believe the instruments. Vertigo during flight is an example of how your brain can get fooled. But it's a physical thing that has to do with the brain getting confused about the signals coming from your body. But there are other ways that our brains get fooled that are sneakier because they are mental. They have to do with how we think. They're called cognitive biases. Or what scientists like to call brain traps. Actually, no. We call those cognitive biases. We're going to take a little break, but when we come back, we'll look at one of the most famous examples of being stuck in a brain trap. I knew we were going down, but I didn't know which direction I was going in. Sorry, but you know that's your left, not your right. It's vertigo. You think that you know, but the plane's not in the air anymore. We're going to crash. But you should know that your brain does Straight. You need good info, but you need to think straight to get the praise. 
Gotta believe the instruments. Okay, so brain traps. Here's an example of one of those. Our brains trust information more when we already think it's true, even if there's good evidence that that information is wrong. And that can also be deadly. Let's go back to the 1830s. Where are we right now? I think we're in England by the ocean. Okay, let's go to London. Okay, we're in London during the 1830s. Most of the city smells like poop, literally. Most houses have no toilets, there are only cesspits. And those regularly overflowed, unless you got guys called night soil man to come and clean them out. Which sucks if you're a night soil man, because at night, people throw their poop out of the windows into the streets. There are sewers, but these were a maze of underground waterways, some over 200 years old. If you had access to one of these sewers, great. Just throw everything in that. Otherwise, into the street. So when it rains, all the water goes into the sewers and drains, taking with it the garbage and the rotting food and the animals and the poop. And all of that drains into the Thames River, which slowly makes its way to the sea. At this time, there are 1.7 million people living in London. So imagine a city with an aging sewer system overloaded with masses of people who are constantly vomiting and defecating filth. Defecating is just a fancy word for pooping. And it's in this foul-smelling time that cholera first erupted in London in 1832. Cholera, by the way, is a bacterial disease that gives you diarrhea. It gives you diarrhea so bad, you poop so often and so much that you can get so dehydrated, you die. So doctors at the time thought cholera was caused by bad air, or miasma. It's miasma! Which made sense at the time because most cholera victims were poor and lived in horribly unsanitary living conditions where the air smelled awful. Also, no one knew anything about bacteria. In fact, no one knew germs even existed at this point. So from 1832 to 1860, London was hit with four major cholera outbreaks that killed over 30,000 people. And we should pause to appreciate that for almost 20 years, cholera was a constant fear. It could kill within days, and no one knew where it came from or how to treat it. Doctors were obsessed with cholera, the causes of cholera, the transmission of cholera. It was the thing that everybody wrote about. And everybody was wrong. Everyone was stuck in a brain trap. Things would have gotten a lot worse if it hadn't been for one doctor, Jon Snow. We're going to get back to Jon Snow in a bit. But let's take a second to discuss how we can avoid brain traps. Brain traps! Just like how instruments help pilots fly straight, science is like a bunch of thinking tools that help us think straight. By thinking scientifically, you can figure out what's actually true and not what your brain thinks is true. For example, here's what we used to think was true. People used to think that seizures were caused by demons. Yes. Or that earthquakes were caused by Greek gods. Release the Kraken. It was only through running experiments and thinking scientifically that people figured out that earthquakes were actually caused by large sheets of the earth crust sliding over each other, or that seizures were caused by malfunctions in the brain, or that the earth actually revolves around the sun and not the other way. These are the actual truths that the process of science has revealed to us. So what, you say? I don't care about the causes of epileptic seizures or volcanoes or the sun. Yeah. Thinking scientifically is for volcanologists or sun studiers. I don't need brain trap avoidance thinking tools. Well, remember Gina? Who? Remember Gina? Hi, guys. I'm home. Bathroom, 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 bathroom. Hi, Mom. Cable's out. Again? When Gina grew up, there was no cable and TVs had antennas. 
So if the picture started getting bad... We called it bad reception. It was probably because of the antenna. Then my father would bang on the TV. Uh Uh-huh. Can I get some privacy, please? We'll catch up with Gina when she's out of the bathroom. But her parents would bang on the TV, and the reception would get better. Sometimes. Sometimes. That may have worked for old TVs because banging would jostle around the antenna a little. But for a cable box that doesn't use antennas... Okay, babe, that's how your dad broke his last two boxes. I know, but it feels so good. Let's wait until the cable guy takes a look at it. Hey! Gina's parents were using something called a rule of thumb, which is like a mental shortcut. Gina, when you see glitches like that, it means that the thing that makes the picture fell asleep, and you gotta whack it to wake it up. So when the cable guy comes over and says this... Yeah, when I see glitches like that, it usually means it's the box. He's also using a rule of thumb that might work sometimes, but not always. Shouldn't you swap out the box for a new one and... And if it's still glitchy, we know it's not the box? What you really wanted to do is to think scientifically. I don't have any more boxes in the truck. Okay, Owen. then how about swapping out the cable to see if it's the cable? Stop talking. Elliot. Mom. Everyone stop. It's probably the box. When can you come back with the new box? Just assuming it's the cable box based on a rule of thumb that feels right doesn't necessarily mean it's actually the cable box. Remember, the purpose of science is to arrive at what's most likely to be the truth. What's really wrong with the TV? So it doesn't matter if you're asking complex questions about the universe or simple questions about your everyday life. The point of doing science is to avoid being fooled by your brain. It's a principle of scientific thought that corresponds to a kind of utter honesty, a kind of leaning over backwards. Which is why the future scientists of Caltech got this advice from the famous physicist Richard Feynman in 1974. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself. And you are the easiest person to fool. In other words, since your job as a scientist is to find the truth, the most important thing to remember is to make sure your brain doesn't get caught in any brain traps. Okay, now let's get back to our Jon Snow story. What made Jon Snow not only a great doctor, but also a brilliant scientist, was his dedication to figuring out the truth. He witnessed the first two cholera outbreaks as a surgeon's assistant, and was beginning to doubt the whole bad air miasma theory. His hypothesis was that cholera was in the water, not the air. He wrote a paper called On the Mode of Communication of Cholera. The Brits like to put like double ofs in there, which I thought was kind of funny. (laughs) And this presented evidence that people were drinking contaminated water and getting sick. We talked about how our brains really like information that seems true, and we dismiss information that feels wrong. At that time in history, the entire medical community already believed that cholera was spread through the air. So Snow's water hypothesis was completely dismissed. He was basically told, thanks for your theory, but... You know nothing, Jon Snow. Brain traps! By 1854, when the third cholera epidemic hit in the Soho neighborhood, Jon Snow was convinced cholera was in the water. But he needed proof. So he teamed up with a local reverend who knew the people in the community. Together, they started systematically talking to everyone, asking questions and recording cases, how many people died, where they lived, and from where they got their water. He then plotted the cholera deaths and their locations on a map. And looking at the map, you can see that the deaths cluster around one water pump, the Broad Street pump. And then there were two special cases. One case was the widow of Hempstead. She lived in a rich neighborhood miles away from Soho. While everyone else in the neighborhood stayed healthy, she died of cholera. It turned out she used to actually live in Soho and love the water so much, she would have her servants travel all the way down to the Broad Street pump to get her water. The other case was the brewery right next to the pump. 
Of the 70 men working there, not one died of cholera. They stayed healthy even though they worked smack in the heart of the outbreak. As it turned out, the workers at the brewery were not drinking well water. Instead, they drank mainly malt liquor, which requires boiling. And unbeknownst to them, in boiling the water, they also would have disinfected it. This is the evidence that Snow needed. He now had a case where 70 people surrounded by bad air stayed healthy, so it couldn't be the air. And another case where the only thing linking the person to cholera was the water. Therefore, it must be the water. With this new evidence, Snow was now able to show how cholera spread. He convinced local officials to remove the handle on the Broad Street pump, but it was only after he died that his theory was fully accepted. When it comes to finding the truth, this story is a great example of why science beats things like rules of thumb. Medical people of the 1830s use rules of thumb to arrive at a theory. When we find cholera, we also find bad stinky air. So, the bad stinky air must be causing the cholera. Which feels right, but it is wrong. Brain traps! John Snow used science to avoid the brain trap of going with a hypothesis simply because you already think it's true. And his work led to an entire new era of science called epidemiology. The scientific study of diseases and how they spread. Which is why he's called the father of epidemiology. And after the break, we'll find out why avoiding brain traps is useful for everyone, not just for people who are trying to figure out the cure to a deadly disease that's killing thousands of people around them. Cholera may be widely disseminated by the emptying of sewers into the drinking water. Sorry, John Snow, but your water theory's got to go. We think we already know that cholera's in the air. Sorry, John Snow, but there's no way your theory's true. Because if it were, then we'd already have the proof. You must not fool yourself. One of the greatest things about science, or thinking scientifically, is that anyone can do it. It can be used to look for planets, or designing a better battery, or even... Why is there cable running all the way through the house? Owen is quitting school to become a cable technician. Boys. Dad, I think we figured it out. I don't want to get mad at We you. ran a cable from the box to the pull-out side, bypassing the cable on the wall, which... Is, did you buy a new cable? Dad, look, and now... Which means, which means it's got to be the cable in the wall, not the box. Uh. And there's another reason to practice science, or become science literate, even if you're not a scientist. Science literacy empowers you to know when someone else is just basically full of it. That's Neil deGrasse Tyson, talking to people on a noisy street. He's an astrophysicist whose job is to find out the truth about the entire universe. Actually, he's also director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York, so his job is to run that and then also get people excited about space and stuff, which he's also really good at. So science literacy empowers you. It inoculates you against charlatanism. A charlatan is someone who tries to take advantage of you by fooling you into thinking they're an expert, when actually they're a total fraud. So getting inoculated against charlatanism is sort of like getting a vaccine against bullshit. In other words, having the right way of thinking about things protects you from people who want to exploit your ignorance. Like the guy that wants to sell you those healing crystals. If you buy all of these crystals, all for $20, you'll maximize your healing power, new low price, and rejuvenate your DNA. Is your first statement, great, how much do they cost? I'll buy some now. Or is it, how do they work? Why do they work? 
Where do you get them? And by the time you're done, the person is in tears looking to find someone else to sell their crystals to. We spend our lives figuring stuff out, asking questions and looking for the truth behind things. From the big, complex, mind-blowing questions like, what is the universe? To the small, practical questions that are only important to you. We need our brains to do science, but we need science to help our brains get to the truth. And that's important if you're, let's say, in the middle of a zombie virus outbreak. But that's next time on Shabam 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 Yes, I know the credits. the credits. Nobody likes the credits. Nobody. It's a whole long list of names of people you don't know. Exactly. But listen, imagine you were the people in the credits mm-hmm. and you didn't get any credit for the things you did. You'd be annoyed. You'd be annoyed. Imagine you were C.C. Herbert who produced the show. Uh-huh. You'd say, hey, you know, I, was, I, I spent a lot of time making phone calls, coordinating with people, making sure things get done on time and submitted at the right time. Producing, basically. I sang on some of the songs. I think you should let people know that I did that. And you'd be absolutely right. You would. You know, the credits is where you find out about stuff. Like, for example, you know the host star. Yeah. You know, Mel Herbert, Wendy Roderweiss, and Josh Kerr's. You know them. The three of them. Did you know they also created the show? No. That includes, like, writing and editing. You didn't and know that. No, you probably didn't know that. But imagine you were Bill Connor, who was the uh, recording engineer for the Bill. entire show, who mixed the show and mastered the show, which means you made sure the sound effects, the dialogue, and the music all sound good and not too soft, not too loud. And, you know, you did a bunch of voices. You'd want people to know that you did that if you were Bill yes, Connor. Yes, you would. For example. And speaking Especially of voices, if Bill. you were one of the various voice actors that we have in this program, the various. like Sean Paris, or Jess Thickpen, or Steve Santucci, or Chase Sawalinski, or Rose Sengenberger, you would be annoyed That's right. if uh, people didn't know uh-huh. that it takes considerable talent yep. and skill in order to make words that are on a page sound like they're coming out of people's mouths. Acting. Right. Right. Or composing, as is the case with Matt Eccles, who composed some of the songs for the show. Good old Matt. If you would compose songs, you'd want someone to know you did it, right? Because it's not that easy making songs. It's hard. Try it. Try and make one. Yeah, do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. Unless you're Matt Eccles. That's right. Imagine you were Ron Roderweiss. Wendy's dad. Imagine. And you didn't get thanked. Uh-huh. You know. Think about that. You'd be kind of annoyed because you came in, you answered some questions, you took time out of your busy day in order to okay. do an interview, and uh, you didn't even get thanks in the show. That'd be kind of annoying to you if that was How you. would you feel? Okay. So put yourself in the position of the people That's right. who you just heard in the credits. You'd like some thanks. And, uh, you know, and then this. This episode of Shabam is sponsored in part by the making and science team at Google. I don't get it. Why would Google do that? Because Google loves science. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. All right. Should we do these credits or what? Hey Shabamas, quick note, since we're about to get into a zombie apocalypse, we wanted to leave you with a quick zombie tip. The best way to avoid a zombie apocalypse is to support Shabam, because we provide information on how to avoid a zombie apocalypse. Circular logic! No, it's super simple to do. You can either send us gold doubloons, that's right! Or you can just go to patreon.com slash Shabam. And we'll give you some cool stuff. As well as some audio brain farts related to the making of the show. What else can I do? You can go to iTunes and do three simple things. What are the three? Okay. One, subscribe. Two, review. And three, like. Wait, what was the first one? Subscribe, review, like. Bing, bang, boom. On YouTube? No, iTunes. Right. But you should also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Okay. And you can get all that information from our website. Shabamshow.com. Cool. And I just wanted to say thanks for putting all this information at the end of the show so we didn't have to sit through five minutes of sponsorships and call-outs in the beginning before starting the podcast. I really appreciate that. Okay. Now you're making it longer. I am? Yeah. Just cut it off. Done. That's it. Okay. What else do you want Shabam. me to say? Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.